You are now listening to the Socks and Sandals podcast. Every time an independent, a truly independent source goes into the Portland Place Bureau, we find chaos. Just one of the people like just told to my managers who like had fired me, they were like, yeah, did you see Tevin's video was on Complex? And he was like, man, dog, they sick, man. Yada, yada. And I was just like, I was laughing because it was just like, you know, bro, like, you know, God, God always got a plan. In that moment, I thought, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to sit here in the middle of this aisle in Target and talk to her and break down what is going on and why she believes that these white Barbie dolls are more valuable or should come home with us over these brown and black Barbie dolls. The Egyptian creation story is a very sexual one. Mm -hmm. And it talks of the god creating himself through a sexual act with himself. So it's a masturbatory big bang like. like I never even hire coaches when I establish a program. I always hire mentors first. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because a mentor gets the big picture. Coach might just get basketball. I want somebody that under X's and I want somebody that's about whole life. I'm not the only podcaster out there. You're not the only marketer out there. Like there's a lot of people doing the same things. But the things that's going to separate you and I from the rest of the people is that we become our best selves and we just don't quit. So what is the gospel? What is the pure, unadulterated yes, gospel? Yes, yes, and that is what I live by, because the moment this changes is the moment I'm leaving Christianity. Okay. The pure, unadulterated gospel, and I can say it in one sentence, but I'll elaborate. For sure. Is love God and do whatever the fuck you want. Back to the Socks and Sandals podcast, where society, culture, history, and religion collide, and we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. Yes, you got Emmanuel. I'm back in the studio, whipping it up here at K Boo Radio Station in Portland, Oregon, and um, this is another Hugh Knows edition of the Socks and Sandals podcast, a continuation of many conversations and speeches from um, Malcolm X as of right now, and so um, this is part two of a conversation that Malcolm X was having. It was an interview that was done in 1963 at UC Berkeley. He was being interviewed by, uh, well, the interview was moderated by a professor by the name of John Leggett, white dude, and a teaching assistant by the name of Herman Blake, black dude. All right. So they were having a discussion of minority groups. That's how they framed the question, but it was basically a discussion of black folks in America and the black Muslim group and nation of Islam. And that's why Malcolm X was there. All right. So we're just going to pick up from where we left off and um, yeah, let's get into it. We'll, we'll kind of review maybe like a minute before uh, we ended last week. So let's get into it. And I never saw Herbert Hill out there one time. Now, whenever something, whenever it takes a, a stoppage of something that's going to affect the white man, you find the white liberal absent. But it's when it uh, involves something that primarily will affect the best interests of black people and black people only, then that white liberal is present. 
Herbert Hill is the labor secretary for the NAACP. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, if he was interested in black people, he would prepare a black man with the type of knowledge and understanding of the labor troubles involving black people that would enable uh, a black man to sit in the same position as secretary of labor or labor secretary in the NAACP. I'm suspicious of whites who join Negroes and always have to be in the lead, who always have to be the head, who always have to be at the top in Negro organizations. Those whites who really have the interest of blacks at heart, let them give some advice to some Negroes and stand on the sideline, but don't join the organization and then get at the head of it and pose as a friend of Negroes. Mm. Well, I, mm -hmm. I would uh, defend his sincerity and his commitment and more than that, I would say that just because a person is a Negro or a black American does not mean that he's going to struggle for, for Negro rights or, or for jobs for Negroes or anything else. I think that today you could point to a large number of, of Negro leaders who have consistently betrayed Negroes in a whole host of areas. They aren't really Negro leaders. These are puppets that have been put in front of the Negro community by white liberals. Mm. These are parrots that have been put in front of the Negro community by white liberals. You can't name me. A Negro leader who has been a Negro leader who has been who has betrayed Negroes who is not who has not been endorsed, sanctioned, uh, subsidized, and supported by the white liberals. And that goes back to la the last episode um, when uh, the moderator was asking Malcolm about a certain person, individual. I think it was called the he was a leader of the Freedom Now Party, and Malcolm knew the man personally. But he didn't know about the party too much. And he's like, I need to wait and see who his friends are. And then what Malcolm just said is basically his reasoning of why he needs to see who his friends are and who's contributing to the Freedom Now party. Because based upon his assessment, what he's saying is the people that have betrayed black folks, the people that have done harm to our to our community and to our causes, are typically folks that are funded by outside money and it's not for the purpose of em empowering our, our people but more more or less taking advantage of us. So that's what Malcolm is getting into. And let's let's run that back just a little bit. Minister Negro uh, put in front of the Negro I think that today you could point to a large number of, of Negro leaders who have consistently betrayed Negroes in a whole host of areas. They aren't really Negro leaders. These are puppets that have been put in front of the Negro community by white liberals. These are parrots that have been put in front of the Negro community by white liberals. You can't name me a Negro leader who has been a Negro leader who has been who has betrayed Negroes who is not who has not been endorsed, sanctioned, uh, subsidized, and supported by the white liberals. Minister Malcolm, I'd like to, well, I'd like to cite mm. one example would be Congressman Dawson, for example, in Chicago. And in, in Chicago, a large number of liberals located in the Hyde Park District have consistently fought Dawson and his betrayals of the Negro, and they've also fought some of the people who represent. Man, I need to put my phone on Do Not Disturb. Hold on, y'all. What up, cousin? Oh, lost connection. Wow. Won't he do it? <laughs> That's messed up. Let me see if I can call my cousin back. I know I could do this. I know I could have my phone calls come directly into the board. Y'all, I'm, I'm experimenting. Here we go. Here we go. Kirsten, what up? Hey, what you doing? 
I'm actually live on the Socks and Sandals podcast right now. You're on the air. Oh. So don't well, don't hello. say anything cr- incriminating. Oh man, I'm just talking about Malcolm X and uh, and he's talking about white liberals and black leaders that have betrayed us and the and the reason why they betrayed us because they're funded by white liberals and they're leading their agenda to be able to take advantage of us. That sounds about right. That's yeah. Yeah. White privilege all the way. Um, <laughs> it's funny because I was just talking to my coworkers, my white coworkers, really? about yeah, I watched that documentary. Um on Netflix that Chelsea Handler did, Hello Privilege, about oh, white privilege. I have not seen it. Oh, you you should. You should watch it. It's very, um, you know, I always have mixed reviews when white people do stuff like this. But the best point, <laughs> the best point that was made on that documentary was this girl mentioned, basically, she's tired of white people coming to black people to solve their problem oh, basically yes. because it which is very true and it was really real it's yeah. like yo y'all are the ones that have an issue with this right like and she and chelsea hamlet said one good thing she was like i don't know white privilege because i am white mm. and so you know it's but don't come and ask me how to how to solve your white privilege problem because right one that has the privilege yeah or whatnot so i truly believe yeah, that's real. You know, white liberals and all of this type of stuff, y'all. Or some people, heck, some people think they're liberals, but they're not. Right. Or because, I think I think some people think that because they're liberal, then they're not racist. And that you being liberal has nothing to do <laughs> with your motives and, or not necessarily with your motives, but like, damn it, losing it again. Is that me? Yeah, I only got one bar in the studio. I'm going to try it again. Oh, that's her. It ain't me. Yeah, Sprint. Make me proud. She on the freeway. You in traffic? Yeah, my Android didn't want to cooperate. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was me. I'm like, dang, man, my, my Sprint is just letting me down all the time. Nah, that was me. Okay. Um, but anyway, but yeah, like... It's, it's real, and uh, my coworker brought up a good point today. She was like, you know, there's there's this community of white people that think they are who they are, but they try not to blatantly be that. So they try to go across, like along this line of, oh, I'm not racist, but at the same time, I'm okay in my little safe community. Right. I'm not racist. I haven't done anything wrong to any of those people. And I voted right. and I voted for Obama. Right. <laughs> but I haven't done anything to help anybody either. Right. I'm good with my two black friends and probably my driver or <laughs> the girl that I hang out with that watching my kids. Right. That's it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a fact. So, and not that all white, you know, not that all white people in those areas are racist or anything, because there are some that just don't know. Yeah. But yeah. are you asking the question? Yeah, That's for sure. I think, you know, like racism and, and like especially like white supremacy and that privilege that they have, 
it's more to me. I see of it more as like a a, a mental illness. That's real. You know, and it's like you don't you don't get rid of mental illness. You just kind of you have to treat it. That's very true. You know, that is very true. So yep. you got to check on that. Like if like if Kanye is bipolar, it's not that he's going to not be bipolar one day, but he has to try as hard as he can to like self-regulate so that he doesn't continue to what you know, whatever, whatever is going on. Is he bipolar? He got person personality disorder. I don't know what he got going on, but you, you know what I'm saying? He got something going on. Yeah, too. but like you, like he got something going on. So there's things that he has to do to regulate that. And and white people, right. y'all got something going on, and you gotta you gotta recognize that. And if if you're not gonna right. do no work, and you're just gonna think that you know I I could just have my black friend, or I can adopt a, a Ethiopian baby, and now I'm good. Like nah, oh it God. don't it don't work that way. <laughs> no, not at all. I could I could all. put it's a like Black Lives Matter sign in my yard, and now I'm good. Nah, nah. That and now work. I support. Support. Yeah. I mean, support. <laughs> see me, see me. Anytime you gotta put a flag on it, I I gotta. I don't know. I'm wondering about. It, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. But anywho, um, I'm gonna go inside and teach. I'm glad I got to be a part. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, you're gonna be on. Uh, this is going out in about two weeks, so I'll let you know when it's when you can, you know, tell everybody that she was on the podcast. Are you gonna be on uh, Jason's podcast, or he just doing that with the with the fellas? He's doing that with the guys. Yeah. We talked about possibly doing like a relationship like segment or just doing a separate one just about like youth and being young and married or just being in relationships and stuff like that because this generation just does not really look at marriage the same anymore. Not at all. Um, so we talked about doing a separate one like that, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Hey, um, real quick, mm-hmm. this is not have anything to do with the podcast. No worries. My mom and them are going to be there this weekend on Thursday. I know. I know. She was and, trying uh, to find out if she could pick her up from the airport. Yeah, well, well my mom just, uh, she just hit, she hit me the other day. and I think okay. she, she hit me yesterday and told me about it, but then... They was just like, nah, um, we don't, we don't want. They don't want me to bring them because they want, they want to surprise my dad. Right, right, right. They want to surprise. Yeah, so they just gonna get an Uber from the airport. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, cool beans. Well, I'm gonna go in here and teach these children of America. Already. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program. Malcolm, I'd like to. Well, I'd like to cite one example. Would be Congressman Dawson, for example, in Chicago, and in. In Chicago, a large number of liberals located in the Hyde Park District have consistently fought Dawson and his betrayals of the Negro, and they've also fought some of the people who represent Dawson on the Chicago City Council. The only Negro I know who is constantly fought, only Negro politician that I know who is constantly fought by white liberals is Adam Clayton Powell. And they call him a racist because he speaks so bluntly on the race issue. Uh, But I'm not, as I said, not too familiar with Dawson and his work. Let me, let me return uh, to the Nation of Islam, per se, Minister, by raising a question which uh, struck me as a result of reading some of Baldwin's work, namely The Fire Next Time. Baldwin pointed out that in Harlem for many years he had passed the street corners and the soapboxes and heard people speaking from these platforms who were known as black nationalists, and nobody was listening. And he said all of a sudden he realized that people were beginning to listen to the Muslim speakers on the street corners in Harlem. The message essentially was the same, but it was that 
now many, many people were listening to what this message was. And you pointed out that uh, the Nation of Islam has been in the uh, picture for about 33 years. What is it, in your judgment, that has caused this tremendous amount of support that the Nation of Islam has garnered in the Negro community in, say, the last 10 years? When you put a seed in the soil, it remains beneath the soil until the season changes. And, and when the season changes, that the seasonal change automatically brings about uh, rather atmospheric conditions, bring about a seasonal change that makes that seed come up or crop grow uh, in its appointed time. And all over this world today, God himself has brought about political uh, changes a political atmosphere, sociological, social atmosphere, um, economic atmosphere. These economic conditions, these political conditions and social conditions uh, combine to bring about a situation that is making black people in America more receptive, their mind more fertile to the seed of truth that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has been planting for 30 some years. And this is springing up today I wonder if that's why the environment, um, like with black people, is is starting to slowly but surely turn its head. Um, but it's real passive. It's been it's been real passive for quite some time. Um, we are starting to wake up as a group. And healthily identify with who we are and what we're about and what we're going to accept and not accept and what we're going to take into our own hands and, you know, just just do what we do and not wait for anyone else. But I wonder if that's if that's what it is, it's like that the amount of adversity is the is the main thing that's going to force force you to change um just those dire situations that they were in that powder keg as he likes to refer to it in, in so many speeches that that was just building and that was just there you know like there was so much pressure being put on us so much disrespect so much violence so much trauma something had to happen somebody had to spring up and, and rebel against it you know and collectively we had to recognize what was happening and then find that you know what this person has been talking about this for years now i'm now i'm all ears and this person is charismatic in his delivery i think that's one of the things that is very important to a movement and <clears throat> and in black, especially in, in, in the black culture, we may not want to accept that. Or maybe we just do and we don't even really think about it. But for one to lead a movement, you have to have a charismatic leader. And that's probably the reason why certain people go to certain churches, because the if the, the more charismatic the pastor is and you know what I mean, the more entertaining he is, then the more people will listen. Right. So. He was he was just referring to uh, the student. Uh, what was the name again? Uh, Herbert Herman Blake. He was just 
saying that um, it was James Baldwin's observation that the Pan-Africanists and black nationalists would be talking similar talk, similar rhetoric that the nation of Islam was talking. But it's just amazing that now the nation of Islam, they are the leaders and they're the main people that the black folks are looking to not all black folks, but like, but a lot of black folks, a lot more black folks are looking to and actually galvanizing around them. And so Malcolm has his ex explanation uh, observations that I have is just that a charismatic leader goes a long way. Y'all can all be saying similar, be giving similar messages, but who has the most charisma? Who has, who is the best speaker? You know, that person is going to attract and retain more more followers uh and he's gonna attract and retain more of a captive audience and it's funny because anyone that's on black twitter um grassroots black twitter um somewhat revolutionary black twitter will notice that there is a a schism a tift a rift between new black media so-called leaders and or spokespersons right and so there has recently been um a schism that's going on between tone talks uh antonio moore um at tone talks and then at breaking brown which is yvette carnell so antonio moore and yvette carnell are the self-proclaimed and i mean they have a i think they have an actual like organized group leaders of ADOS, which is Afri American descendants of slaves. And so that refers to basically black folks in America that are not, that have not immigrated within the past, you know, four or 500 years. And so, and, and that have a, have a lineage, have a, from, have a lineage from descendants of slavery in our old reparations, right? That's the main, that's the main thing, but among other things that, that they're fighting for. Now, Tariq Nasheed has also he has his his hidden hidden color series of DVDs, hidden colors one through five, the 18, 1804 DVD. Um, he's an author and he does his weekly show on YouTube and he has a podcast, Tariq Radio. So he has a huge following. Just him by himself has a huge following in this new black media of a raising uh, raising awareness to certain political things and societal things that are going on in black culture and raising awareness of how black people need to watch out for similar to what Malcolm is saying, like certain, certain um, political puppets and watch out for corporate schemes and all these things, all these tools of white supremacy that are going to um, work against ADOS and black Americans. Right. Um, so, He's been using the ADOS term pretty, pretty regularly. And he's because he's more of a charismatic person. Um, they have they both have similar messages. He's more of like a, a, a overarching view, um, an eagle eyed view of white supremacy. And he approaches certain things and topics that's going on in the culture from that lens. And um, Antonio Moore and Yvette Carnell have more of a statistics based approach to what's happening the disproportionate outcomes um, for black people in this system of white supremacy in America. And um, yeah, so they, they use a lot of stats 
and and they get in there and they also come from a political they take a, a more of a political approach and a political lens um that they use and so oh, where was i going with this um because malcolm what was malcolm talking about uh so basically there's there's been a there's been a, a disconnect between these two oh the pan-africanist and the black muslim okay so um they so yvette carnell and antonio moore have taken offense to Tariq nasheed wanting to start a conference or wanting to host a conference because they just had their ados conference um, which is a conference for American descendants of slaves. And they also had one of the Democratic um, non-presidential nominees, or I don't know if she's a, you call her a nominee or just someone that's in the pres- presidential race, Marianne Williamson, among other people that were there to speak at that conference. Um, but, you know, it the conference didn't really move the needle, so to speak. Uh, it didn't make a big, like, there's not, a, unless you follow them on Twitter, or on YouTube, you wouldn't have heard of the ADOS conference. And, and I don't know if there was like that great of a turnout. Right. And so um, and everybody, you know, they have their differing views of, from how Tariq approaches things and does things, you know, all that, all that good stuff. And he has his differing views about how they do things. But um, they've never had any back and forth, any disconnect. But, you know. They they did make some statements about Tariq when he said he wanted to do his foundational black American conference, which is basically the same thing as uh, ADOS. But it's like a, just a different term, his own term that he uses um, for American descendants of slaves. He just calls us foundational black Americans like everybody don't want to call put that slavery name and in, in how they identify themselves. So that's why I like to identify as foundational black American. It just sounds better. And we are foundational to this country. We were here before Columbus. So, yeah, I like that. I like that term. I'm going to rock with that. Right. For the time being, until I find something different, because at first I was I was going with ADOS because that was all that we had at the time. And that was as creative as of a of a term that we had had for ourselves. So he had mentioned long story short, he had mentioned, you know, the fact that, you know, he was he was doing this conference and and people were there was a lot of pushback on how much he was saying that the conference was going to cost and that he did a like a Kickstarter campaign and people were just kind of leery about him and how he raises money for his projects and doesn't necessarily put up money. Um, but one thing I know about Kickstarter and and he he switched it to Indiegogo is that like if you do those type of campaigns, um, then like if you pay whatever amount you pay, you get something in return. So it's not like he's just asking people for money. And then that money isn't going towards anything. It's just going in his pocket like that money is for like, that's your ticket. Like if you if you give however much you got, 100, 135, 250, whatever it is, like that's your ticket. That's your cost of admission and all the all the activities and all of that. So but people were banging on him for the the amount that he estimated that that the conference would cost and also the fact that he was doing it by himself and and that he was doing that conference when they already had their ADOS conference. And he's like, yo, we can have more than one conference, you know? And, and if we be honest, the ADOS conference wasn't really popping like that. And Antonio Moore and and Yvette Carnell, they don't have charisma. And he was speaking more, more specifically to Antonio Moore. Like 
He's just not a charismatic individual. So unfortunately, like that conference isn't going to do well with people that don't speak with a certain level of charisma. And, you know, Antonio Moore took that as a shot and Yvette Carnell rocks with him. So she defended him and they were going in on Tariq. Now they're going back and forth. These leaders of these, you know, well, Yvette Carnell and Antonio Moore would call themselves leaders. Um, Tariq wouldn't call himself a leader, but, you know, for lack of a better term, he's a, he's a leader, you know. And so um, these leaders are going back and forth. And it's just like. It's I, I know I have a good suspicion that Tariq's conference will garner more attention and have a bigger turnout because of who he is. Both of those parties are having similar conversations. They agree more, way more than they disagree. But what Tariq has over those guys, Antonio and Yvette, is that he is more charismatic. He is funny. He is hilarious, actually. Like to me, he's like he could be a comedian if he wanted to be. But you know, he's he's just hilarious and he's charismatic, and so that goes a long way in these movements. And so. When you have a Malcolm X, when you have a Khalid Muhammad, when you have now a Riza Islam, who's like coming up in the ranks and pretty much the, the spokesperson for when you have a Louis Farrakhan, like when you have these charismatic people, when you have a, a Muhammad, Ali, Muhammad Ali, like, man, that goes a long way in pushing your movement. And even Martin, Martin Luther King, obviously, like he was extremely charismatic. He was a great speaker. And so. He can he can take that message of what we need, what we want in the black community and people will follow and rally behind him because of that. And so um, I don't know why I went on so long of a tangent, but yeah, man, charisma goes a long way. And and we need to recognize that and and not not shy away from it and not act like like this, that it's not happening because it, it, it does happen. It does matter. And. Let's just, let's just acknowledge it. And causing our people to see and understand now what they couldn't see and understand before. What is the nature of this situation which is making black people more receptive? The, well, you take uh, the, in the past, say, 15 years, how uh, the nations have emerged, dark nations have emerged in, in Africa. Uh, prior to 10 years ago, most Negroes associated or identified Africa with a savage, jungle-like place. And whenever you mentioned the word African in their mind's eye, they could see the image of a, someone running around with a spear uh, with no language. You'd say, ugga bugga boo or buana or something. And uh, who'd be in a jungle running from lions or chasing lions. But then when, uh, after the war, when the United Nations was set up in New York City, uh, black people began to look at uh, uh, men like Tom Mboya. They began to look at men like uh, Nkrumah. They begin to see men like Lumumba. They begin to see men like Nasser. They begin to see uh, these uh, Belawa and Azikwe who could uh, exchange intellectually with whites on an international level in a political form and hold their own. This made the black people in this country realize that what the Honorable Elijah Muhammad had been teaching all the time actually had substance. And they begin to turn it over in their mind and see that what he was saying had more weight to it than what these other uh, Negroes were saying. And they begin to identify themselves with the black world and the black struggle more uh, closely than they identified themselves with this so-called white world. Let me ask you. And that's why 
knowing our history is crucial to making any change because what we're seeing and what we're getting is just is trash and we are selling ourselves short um but sometimes you won't even know that you're selling yourself short until you see what you are capable of and you see what you're made of and that's the whole part of this you know series is like you got to know where you came from and you got to know what you're made of and we, we and we need to know all of black history not just the part that white people will allow us to read in books in in the school system not just what white people will present will allow us to present during a black history month celebration quote unquote we got to we got to learn about even the folk the folks that they didn't like why didn't they like them what message were these people given we need a holistic we have to take a holistic approach to black history which is just history we have to take a holistic approach to history acknowledge all history for what it is black white mexican uh uh australian whatever whatever the case might be indigenous native all of that we need to take all that history into account but for us as foundational black americans or just black anyone that's a part of the african diaspora we need to know our own history because we don't we just we lack the knowledge and we lack the perspective and the imagination of what we could be and what we should be because we're just going based upon what we've been given and we've never been given what we deserve and and our enemy or our oppressor isn't obligated to give us what we do i mean that's the that's the point of an oppressor like you're supposed to keep that person down and so we can't just continue to allow our oppressors to inform and feed and you know just give us everything that we like we have to we have to get it on our own we have to be empowered to do to go fish and not just go to the store and buy fish you know what i'm saying so carry on malcolm you a question with respect to a statement which Essien Yudum quotes as being on a bulletin board in the University of Islam in Chicago by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. According to Essien, Mr. Muhammad states, up you mighty race, you can accomplish what you willed. Build your future on these foundations, freedom, justice, and equality. What is the definition of freedom, justice, and equality for the black man, and where and when is it to be attained? Great well, question. take equality first. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad doesn't teach us to uh, associate equality with whites. Equality has nothing to do with whites. We, want e we don't want to be equal with the white man. He's not the criteria or yardstick by which equality is measured. He's not in a position to tell us we are equal. It's not his right, it's not his to do. Equality, we want equality. We had equality before the white man was created. Mm. We, had the, we had equality before the white man came into existence. And we want equality whether the white man is on this earth or not. Equality means the uh, opportunity to develop all of our dormant potential, mm. Mm. All, all of our dormant 
capability. And in, 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 uh, in developing this dormant uh, capability, the right and the ability to stand on this earth on some land uh, of our own and bring about a civilization and a society in, we will, in which we will be completely independent, complete freedom to uh, uh, take care of the needs, to take care of the uh, wants and the likes and the dislikes of our people, to establish our own nation, our own society, our own heaven, our own future. This is what we mean by freedom, by uh, equality, and justice means uh, as you sow, so shall you reap. If you do wrong, you'll get wrong in return. And if you do right, you'll get right in return. When you're in your own nation, in your own land, you're in a position to get justice. But when you're in another man's country, in another man's land, under another man's flag, and under another man's uh, 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 government, and under another man's court system, you have to look to that other man for justice, and you'll never get it. Mm. And Negroes in this yeah. country probably are authorities on that. Yeah. To what extent? Whew. We are authorities on that being dealt injustice. Man. Still true. Wouldn't you agree? In the year of our Lord, 2019. Does this formulation approach that expounded by Zionists? Uh, they, for example, many Zionists, Zionists maintain they could never expect uh, justice in the Tsarist courts and, and the, the courts found in other countries in Eastern Europe and so on. And they decided that it would be wise to establish a separate state in, in Israel. And, the, a, and, the, and all of the world powers got together, the white world powers, I should mm -hmm. say, got together and helped all of these white Jews to establish a separate state uh, in the heart of a dark-skinned people's territory. Uh, and mm -hmm. if white people can get together and, and, and let other whites, help other whites, uh, to establish uh, an independent nation right in the midst of dark-skinned people, and then we see, we don't see where white people should be so much against the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's solution, not of setting up an independent dark nation in a white people's property, but he's asking uh, uh, the opportunity to set up an independent nation in our own, on our own continent. Let us leave America and go back home among our own people on our own land and set up our own independent society. But all he says is that this government, which made us slaves, should supply the transportation for us to get back home and give us all of the machinery and the tools necessary for us to till the soil and establish our own agricultural system to feed and clothe our people, our own economy, and in some way become an independent people among our own people on our own continent. This is intelligent. And Zionists should never criticize us. You say then that... I think I spoke on this last time because um, he had a similar answer, but that's a tall order <laughs> to expect your oppressor to supply you with everything you need to become independent and thrive. Now, I but the the premise, of course, is intelligent and it and is coherent. Um but that's a, that's a, in reality, that's a tall task. Yeah, we do need to be independent. Yes, America, the United States of America does owe American descendants of slaves. They do have a debt that was never paid to foundational black Americans. Um, 
for them to send us to our own land and give us, um, you know, the the machinery, the tools to be able to be self-sufficient. Man, that's it sounds great. But as we can see, that has not happened. And I don't know if there's going to be something that will happen of that nature. Now, that's what the ADOS movement is primarily about reparations for American descendants of slaves. But how those reparations may or may not come or how, how they may come, you know, that's the big deal. That's the big issue. That's the question that no one seems to have an answer for politically. Um, and even in, in the groups, I don't know if if anyone has a there's a specific um, checklist of how we want the reparations to be paid out over what time period, in what form, you know, as far as what that looks like. If anybody knows of any specific agenda of how the reparations, how like if there's any group that's put out there, this is how we want it to to play out. This is how we want it, like whether it's a check or tax benefits or whatever the case might be if y'all have any resources on that any knowledge any pdfs you can send me hit me up at socks and sandals podcast on instagram and on twitter at sx sndls or just search socks and sandals podcast let's get back to it the united states is not the black man's country Definitely american not. laws no, are no. not black men's laws no so I, uh, American laws are not the black man's laws. Well, the, the uh, laws here in America were made white by white people for the benefit of white people. That's the fact. Constitution was written by whites for the benefit of whites. It was never written for the benefit of blacks. And, and when you read the... And when they say all men are created equal, we were not considered a man back then. We were considered three-fifths of a human, which was basically chattel, which is basically an animal. The Constitution, I think in Article 1, se Section... Article 1, Section 2, or Section 1, Article 1, some one of the two, and it's in the Constitution. It says that uh, it classifies black people as three-fifths of a man. Oh, there you go. Three-fifths of a man, subhuman, less than a human being. It relegates us to the level of cattle, hogs, chickens, cows, a commodity that could be bought and sold at the will of the master. No, it was written by whites for the benefit of whites and to the detriment of blacks. Hmm. And when a black man stands up talking about his constitutional rights, he's out of his mind. Mm, mm, mm. Now, Minister Malcolm, in our textbook, which the students have read, supposedly, there is a statement which is a... I don't like how they don't, they don't answer back. Like, they don't say nothing back in response to what he said, for the most part. Uh, like, you, you're not going to say nothing about that, John Leggett, professor? And even... Even uh, the student, the teaching assistant, Herman Blake, you're not going to say nothing to that? He's going to go on to the next question? Come on, bro. Quotation from Essien and essentially that from uh, Lincoln to the effect that uh, the nation of Islam does not have a great deal of support in the Negro community in this country by and large. And a recent national poll of American Negroes found that Leaders and rank and file, according to their statistics, supported the Reverend Martin Luther King somewhere over 90%, whereas the support and favorable rating that they gave Minister Muhammad was less than 20%, and somewhere around 45% of them gave an unfavorable rating to Mr. Muhammad. 
what would your response be in terms of Baldwin's statement that this is a growing thing and the kinds of evidence that we have that there isn't much to it? Well, uh, that, that statement I made just made concerning the Constitution is Article 1, Section 2 in the Constitution mm -hmm. where it classifies us as chattel. Uh, Baldwin did point out that Mr. Muhammad has the only grassroots support and is the only one whose whole following operates or functions on a mass vehicle. Uh, and, and I think Baldwin told Dr. Kenneth Clark that uh, Martin Luther King is at the end of his rope. Now, uh, concerning the uh, poll taken by Newsweek magazine, I think you said that this was the leaders who said that, uh, who went with King and against Mr. Muhammad around 90%. I just told you a little while ago, these leaders that they called leaders, this included <laughs> Lena Horne, this included Dick Gregory, and this included comedians, comics, trumpet players, baseball players. Show me in the white community where a comedian is a white leader. Show me in the white community where a singer is a white leader. Mm, that's a bar right there. That's still happening to this day. Or a dancer or a trumpet player is a white leader. These aren't leaders. These are puppets and clowns that uh, have been set up over the white community and uh, over the black community by the white community and have been made celebrities and usually say exactly what uh, they know that the white man wants to hear. And it is. Now, I won't say that for all of them, especially Dick Gregory. Um, but I, I, I understand what he's getting at is that they're just entertainers. They're doing what they do. They, they entertain. But it's ironic that they, that the white media will call these people leaders all the time. It's almost, it almost goes back to uh, Charles Barkley saying, I'm not a role model. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm not a role model. Like, your parents should be your role model, your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, people in your community. I'm just a basketball player. And we as black folks in America, we've even fallen for that. And we put our entertainers on such a high pedestal as if they should be the examples simply because they are the most influential people in our community. But that's by design. And then we run with it and we accept it. And now we place huge expectations on entertainers to be like the most morally upright and the best examples of what it is to be black and what we're supposed to do as black people. We look to them now and it's like, we've been trained to do it, man. That's the diabolical sad thing about it. An honor actually that they endorsed Dr. Martin Luther King and uh, uh, were against the honorable Elijah Muhammad. That's actually an honor. Now, when you say that they also, in this same Newsweek poll magazine, they, I think the pollster said that he went into the Negro community and asked about the Muslims. And many Negroes whom he asked said, well, I never heard of the Muslims. Who are they? You know, this, this is the what, rank and file we're talking about. Oh, yeah. About. Now, yeah. when they got down to the rank and file, this was the answers that they got. Uh, this is equivalent to uh, the situation in Kenya during the Mau Mau uprising when many uh, frightened uh, whites in Kenya, Africa, would go among the Africans and ask them, what about the Mau Mau? And the African would say, I never heard of them. And the same white man who would ask the African this question and very naively believe what the African said, when he went to bed that night, he would lose his head. And usually the one who took his head was the same African who told him that afternoon he had never heard of the Mau Mau. <laughs> Except uh, in the Newsweek poll, they used Negro interviewers. You'll find that oftentimes Negroes are as much on guard 
uh, around Negro interviewers who usually represent the bourgeois uh, element of Negroes as they are on guard around whites. Uh, usually Negroes know that when this bourgeois Negro walks through the door, he is not doing something that he's initiated him. Bourgeois Negro. I wonder if that phrase will ever come back in, in style. It's kind of funny. Himself, but he's involved in something in which the white man is the absolute author of and has sent him to the Negro community for some information. And when they give that Negro some information, usually they give him the information that they want, the white, want him to take back to the white man because that's who he's going to take it back to. Four more minutes. Uh, our time is just about up, Minister Malcolm, and uh, perhaps you could summarize and conclude by giving us, in your opinion, or in the opinion of Mr. Elijah Muhammad, what would be the ideal solution to the racial problem in the United States today? Well, on Thursday, October the 3rd, the New York Tribune, in an editorial, pointed out in Boston, in an article called The Civil Rights Iceberg, they pointed out how Kennedy had realized that beneath the water, the civil rights uh, whole problem uh, was political suicide. Because in his own hometown, the head of the Board of Education, a woman named Mrs. Uh, Hicks, was running against the NAACP philosophy, and she swept aside all other opposition. The whole white community supported her in opposition to the NAACP's desire for integrated schools, integrated housing, and otherwise. So I say that to say this, that even the Jewish community, which is supposed to be pro-liberal, went against the NAACP. Whites are against integration in practice, but they're for it in principle. So the only solution is separation. And the Honorable Elijah Muhammad says that this can be brought about simply by letting our people be exposed to the truth about ourselves, about the white man, about our history and our condition in this country. And once we are exposed to the complete truth as things, about things as they actually exist in this country, the masses of black people will choose complete separation from this entire system, political system, economic system, social system, and whatever other aspect or description you, or, or uh, uh, adjective you want to attach to it. Let us go back home to our own people, live among our own kind, and solve our own problems ourselves. And if the white man doesn't want us to go back to our own people and live in our own country, then since we can't get along together in peace on this country with white people, let us separate part of this continent, migrate to that separate territory, let the government give us everything we need to establish our own independent economic system and society, and thereby we'll be able to solve our own problems ourselves and prove that we are human beings and a part of the human family and can do for ourselves what other humans have done for themselves. And then we'll be able to stop blaming the white man for what he has done and stop begging the white man to solve our problems. We'll be able to solve our problems ourselves. Thank you very much. That's it. That's it, folks. Man, that was powerful. Stop begging, stop asking, and start doing for self. Another thing that, that stood out to me was he was talking about what people do in practice versus in principle. You know what I mean? And so and he, he was talking about white people as far as like the, the change that they say that they want to happen in principle, but what's actually what's actually happening? What how do they practice it? Are they practitioners of what they preach? Are they pr practitioners of the Black Lives Matter signs that are in their businesses and in their yards? Are they practitioners of in our countries 
Black Lives Matter, disability. Have you guys seen those flags, those little signs, the little American flag, and it has all these slogans of all people are welcome and all gen, all whatever. Like, there's a lot of symbolic change or that that people like to see. There's a lot of principles and ideals that people spout, but what are the actual constructive consequences of those principles and those symbols and that's what we're checking for and that's all that matters at the end of the day when it comes to especially black folks in america and just those in the african diaspora what are the actual consequences what are, what are the constructive changes that are happening so that we're we're no longer in the same spot of thinking that things are going to change but they're just not actually changing they're just moving around and taking different shape and taking taking different form so that concludes that conversation of malcolm x john leggett and herman blake at uc berkeley in 1963 and that concludes another episode of the hugh knows series in part of socks and sandals podcast so um, if you guys are on iTunes, if you have not rated five stars yet, go ahead and do that. If you have not commented, yo, let me know what you like. Let me know why you rock with the podcast or just let me know anything that's on your mind. Leave me a short little comment. It takes like 15 seconds. So if you could do that for me, I would greatly appreciate it. Your feedback is my oxygen. If you have any questions, any comments personally, hit me up on my show pages socks and sandals podcast on instagram um on twitter at sxsndls or simply search socks and sandals podcast all right so once again it's the socks and sandals podcast where society culture history and religion collide and we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. holla at y'all next week grace and peace